So let's see, get this right. Yeah, uh, is, is this good? Are we good? Okay. So this is a, a family service, and I see a lot of families are on vacation. So, um, but I thought for a family service, it would be appropriate to have a family story. And this is a family story. In fact, it's a story of a confrontation between an indignant mother. I'm looking at Shirley because she has two sons who are 11 or 12 now. And which is exactly the age of this story. So with whom do you identify in this story? With, do you identify with Jesus? Do you identify with the teachers? Do you identify with the parents? You can kind of tell by my title who, who I identify with, with the indignant mother. And I was wondering, do you think this passage is a little bit dangerous for kids? I mean, for teenagers, they might get the wrong idea. Like, you can just go off and do your own thing. Don't ask permission. Don't even inform your parents. And then when you see how upset they are, you don't even apologize. So. How can we use this as a, a lesson for kids? I want you to think about that. So here I am with my discomfort. I remember once my friend Jeannie Haggerty said that when she feels discomfort in a Bible passage, it's usually that precise thing she needs to pursue. So that's what we're going to do today. Father, I pray that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to your word and to receive your comfort. Amen. In fact, as I've studied this passage in the context of the prologue of Luke's gospel, and in the context, uh, I've come to the conclusion that Luke is creating this discomfort on purpose. He's intentionally structuring his story to lead us to identify with Jesus' parents, and especially with his mother, and so with her indignation. He's leading us directly to this discomfort because there's something very important about Jesus that needs to be revealed. Jesus is much more than Mary had in mind. Sometimes Jesus upsets us and, cannot, and we cannot move beyond our present way of seeing to a new stage of faith without experiencing this distress. We'll go through the passage in a straightforward way, verse by verse. First, let's backtrack two verses to get a bit more of the context. So that's the, the first verse Eric read. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law, they returned home 
to Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this is the last verse of the story before. Do you remember the story in the temple when Jesus was a baby and the two old people came? They were prophets and they prophesied over him and his mother and his father were amazed. Do you remember that? That's what we're talking about. And they went home to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is this little itty-bitty village in the north, and nothing special happens in Nazareth. Both that story, the one of baby Jesus in the temple, and this story of 12-year-old Jesus in the temple take place in the temple. And in both stories, Jesus is recognized as something very special. In the first story, the two prophets supernaturally recognize the infant Jesus. And now in this story, the boy Jesus is wowing the elite by his understanding of scripture. In both cases, Jesus is being recognized by prophecy through the Holy Spirit as a baby, and here because of his exceptional insight into God's word. And I don't think it's a coincidence that both happen in the temple. The second thing I'd like to underline in verse 39 is Luke's insistence that Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law. His parents are portrayed as very devout. They are good Jewish parents. They've been recognized supernaturally through Simeon's prophecy, but they also fulfill the ordinary working out of the law. In verse 39, they return from a very high point in their life. The miraculous birth of Jesus, the angels, the prophets, all kinds of things happening. And now they go back for 12 years of ordinary life. Verse 40, there the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. This is one of the few summary verses that Luke sprinkles through his gospel. But what's special here is that there are two of them, one at the beginning of our story and one at the end. And this serves, and they're almost the same. They both talk about wisdom and growth and favor before God. And they serve to tell us that the story in the middle, this story about Jesus in the temple at 12 years old, is very, very important. They also, the story also serves to illustrate how Jesus is wise. But how does this relate to me being upset with Jesus? Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Can somebody tell me what time of year is the Feast of Passover? Edouard. Spring, yes. Why is it spring? Well, it's spring because that's when it is. But how do you know 
you know because our Easter is linked to Jewish Passover. So it's a good time of year to be traveling. In Israel, you don't want to be traveling in August. That's, whoa. But Easter is good. Um, this account starts with the point of view of Jesus' parents. In fact, there are more words used to talk about them than about Jesus. It's about two to one. So if this were a film, the camera would spend more time on them than on him. Luke is telling this story from the point of view of his parents because he wants us to feel and identify with them. So kids, remember when you were little and, well, there's almost no kids here, uh, kids over there. Remember when you were little and you used to put on your father's big clunky shoes or your mother's high heels to kind of pretend what it's like to be them? Well, I'm asking you to put on the dusty sandals of Joseph and Mary and walk through this story with them. We see his parents go regularly to celebrate the Passover feast in Jerusalem, even though it's a several day trek. It's not clear if this is the first time Jesus accompanies them or not. All we know is that this time he was 12 years old, an age that is somewhere between childhood and adolescence. And similarly, the story is right plunk in the middle of the infancy stories and the adult stories of Jesus. And by the way, it's the only story of Jesus as a child. If this was Jesus' first time to go down to the festival in Jerusalem, I imagine how excited he must have been. Google Maps tells us that it takes 30 hours to walk from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And usually they're wrong, so it's probably more. Um, so that's four or five days worth of walking. Now, the cool part was that they walked in groups. It was safer that way. But that meant that the kids didn't always have to walk with their parents. They could go off and walk with their cousins or their friends. They could move around. It was just this whole swarm of people walking together. And at night, they, they camped out. They slept à la belle étoile. They had campfires. It was, they sang songs. We know they sang the, the Psalms of Ascent over and over and over. So this was kind of a family camp on foot. It was, I imagine it was the high point, both for the adults and for the kids. Then of course, there was seeing the temple for the first time. If you were walking from Quebec City to Montreal and you get close to Montreal and then you see Mount Royal, the kind of pimple royal there, but then you see L'Oratoire Saint-Joseph, you see, I see L'Oratoire Saint-Joseph. Well, the temple was right at the, Jerusalem was a mountain, eh? 
And so at the top of the mountain was the temple, and it was one of the wonders of the world. It was very magnificent. And so when they said, oh, I see the temple, and then they, they got closer and closer. It was exciting. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. The parents did not know it. There's the problem. Now, think about it. When is the story taking place? It's not taking place during the feast of the Passover. That's finished. They're on the way home. It's nothing. There are high points in our liturgical calendar when we experience certain emotions and religious feelings, the wonder of Christmas, the terrible grief of Good Friday, the exuberant joy of Easter. As we see earlier in the prologue, the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah at a liturgical peak when he was in the Holy of Holies, a once in a lifetime event. On the other hand, when the same angel appeared to a teenage peasant girl, a few months later, it appears to be in her ordinary life, not any special liturgical event. There are times when we expect a spiritual experience, something special from God, but there are others in our ordinary life when he surprises us and catches us off guard. Both these are part of God's way of dealing with us. Jesus stayed behind. His parents did not know it. Even if he didn't ask his parents, why didn't he just tell his parents that he had to be in the temple? The text does not tell us. I imagine that when Jesus didn't leave with them, they just didn't notice. I guess they just assumed he would stay with the group. After all, he would have been a really dependable kid, don't you think? And they knew their boy, their son. What they didn't know was that he was, or what they didn't realize to what extent, was that he was much, what they didn't remember, we'll say it that way, he was much more than their son. They were not thinking about the other part of his nature and calling. And this appears to be their first wake-up call. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Luke doesn't describe any feelings, but we can imagine. Luke lets us know that Jesus stays behind, 
So we have an edge on the parents. We know who know none of that. The story is told soberly, yet we feel the tension mounting as one entire day on the road and they realize they can't find Jesus. Which of us parents cannot identify with their panic? Sometimes 15 minutes looking for a lost child can seem like an eternity. The anxiety intensifies as the hours pass and each of their hopeful hypotheses, maybe he's with the cousins, maybe he's with Uncle Reuben, uh, is exhausted. And they must come to the conclusion, we have to go back. I'm assuming with apprehension in each step. There are periods of anxiety in our lives that thrust themselves upon us when everything turns upside down in a matter of minutes. And nothing seems to matter. Nothing else seems to matter. An unexpected diagnosis, a phone call informing us of a tragic accident, a sudden estrangement. Mary, who had accepted Gabriel's announcement with extraordinary faith and serenity, is caught off guard in this new situation, disguised in ordinary life. I imagine her prayer in every breath, God help me, please help me. I think you know that prayer. Perhaps she's also struggling with omnipresent parental guilt. I should have checked. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Three days, one blissfully unaware one day frantically searching, and the third day, perhaps in the morning, they found him. This is the climax of the story. There he is, sitting among the teachers. I imagine him in the center of a circle, in the center of the story. The text tells us he was listening to them and asking them questions the way a rabbi does. This was a dialogue with the intellectual and spiritual elite of Israel. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Were they amazed simply at this child prodigy? Or could it be that their hearts were strangely warmed like the disciples on the road to Emmaus near the end of this gospel, feeling the excitement of seeing the deep beauty of God's action 
throughout his scripture and seeing new links they had never before considered. The passage does not tell us, only that they were amazed at his understanding and answers. One translation in contemporary language, I think captures his parents' reaction very well. Just a minute. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. All the crescendo of worry, riddled with guilt, and finally, relief explodes as his mother finds him here, apparently so oblivious to her crisis. Okay, kids. William. Have you ever experienced this where your mother was maybe looking for you, she finds you, she's so happy she wants to hug you, and at the same time she's mad at you? It must be confusing for kids, eh? What does oblivious mean? They're oblivious. He, she, he seems oblivious to her crisis. Does anybody, somebody tell us what that means? Not aware, completely unaware, not thinking about. Like the teachers, the parents are also astonished but it doesn't seem to be for the same reason. Now, why were the teachers astonished? Anybody can answer me, come on. Pardon me? You think that's why the teachers were astonished? That's, that's true, but what does the passage say about the teachers, why they were astonished? his understanding, his deep understanding. Why do you think his parents are astonished to find him here in the middle of these teachers? It wasn't part of their hypothesis, no. And, and here he is in the middle of the cream of Jerusalem, their little boy from Nazareth is talking to very important people. Imagine uh, the Prime Minister of Canada and a few other important people there, maybe some professors from McGill. <laughs> Why have you done this to us? Mary is taking it very personally and I don't know, you've noticed parents tend to take these things personally. It's about what he's done to her and to Joseph, to them as his parents. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Jesus' answer is surprising 
he throws the question back at them as though to say he doesn't need to explain his actions to them since they should have known already that he would be in the temple talking to the teachers. Jesus' answer is also very dense. There's an idiomatic expression in Greek that literally sounds something like, in the things of my father, which includes several meanings. It could be translated in my father's house, or it could be translated about my father's business. And you may have seen both these translations in different, different Bibles. In my opinion, both these translations apply very well to this situation. And we actually need, you know, sometimes there's words that have multiple layers. Well, this expression has multiple layers and Luke loves double meanings. Jesus is insisting that he needs to be in his father's house, the temple, the heart of the sacrificial system, where the religious leaders gather, remember the importance of the temple in Luke. And he's also saying that he needs to be doing his father's business. Here at 12, he is doing his father's business, explaining scripture, asking and answering the way rabbis teach. Rabbis are Jewish teachers. religious teachers. Mary challenges Jesus, referring to his responsibility to his parents, your father and I. But Jesus answers, referring to his responsibility to my father. How exactly Jesus came to this awareness of his divine identity as he passed from childhood to adulthood we don't know. We do see here, though, the beginnings of his awareness of this mystery and its relationship to Old Testament scripture. Already at 12, he must take initiative based on his conviction of who he is, whether his family understands him or not. And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. Mary and Joseph don't get it. Even 20 years later, in the thick of his ministry, his family, including his mother, will not fully understand what he's about and will try to stop him. In his prologue, Luke has just portrayed Mary through a series of stories as exceptionally devout, perceptive, thoughtful, prophetically recognized, surrounded by a constellation of pious elders, Zachariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, young Mary shines in her faith, and yet, even this exceptional model of faith has never before been the mother of God. And she just doesn't know 
what to expect. Even she needed her faith to be stretched and expanded. The confrontation doesn't take long. Once Jesus has done what he needed to do and said what he needed to say, he submits without further ado. Maybe his parents needed to have this window into his identity, but Jesus doesn't belabor, belabor it. He accepts their lack of understanding and goes back to life in Nazareth, submissive to them. If the teens and preteens I was worried about earlier take this last verse to heart and submit to their parents, even when the teens know they are right, we parents have nothing to complain about. Mary's great redeeming quality in this passage is revealed in this ending. Okay. What is a redeeming quality? A quality that compensates for other defects. So maybe your child is kind of messy, but he's so thoughtful and kind. You forget about the messiness and you remember the thoughtfulness and kindness. So what is Mary's great redeeming quality here? His mother treasured all these things in her heart. Not that she understood, but that she treasured. This echoes Luke 2.18, immediately following the visit of the shepherds at Jesus' birth. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. So what's that word, ponder? Ponder is think. It's, it's think way. It's like you go around and around, you ponder. We have in this story a very important Christological passage. What does that mean? Something that talks about who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is a man, a human. He had to grow and change and learn. Jesus is also God, who had to follow an agenda from above that would not always be understood, even by those closest to him. I don't think it's possible to understand all it means for Jesus to be truly man and truly God. Even Mary, saintly Mary, could not grasp all that was happening in this child she knew so intimately yet she treasured and she pondered likewise i believe luke is inviting us to treasure up and ponder 
what we don't initially understand, whether it be the great mystery of Christ's nature or the disruptive way he sometimes acts in our life. Treasure and ponder the discomfort and the upset we can feel with God. Press into it. First, this God-man is not someone who fits easily into our categories. Second, Jesus may act in a way in our lives that we really don't get. He is the king of the universe. And he doesn't have to answer to us. Like Aslan, the Lion King from Narnia, he may come and go when we don't expect. He is not a tame lion, but he cares deeply for us, enough to give his life for us. He might upset us, but that's okay. Our job is to enter in and pursue him. Lord, help us, help me, help all of us, like Mary, to go beyond all the faithfulness and devout following that we have and enter into the things that upset us. Help us to worship you and allow you to stretch us and expand us to a greater understanding of who you are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.